Would you open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, verse 13? Uh, today we're going to go through Jesus' teaching on the narrow gate. And he's going to present some surprising news and conclusion of the few who enter the narrow gate, which leads to eternal life, and the many who enter through the wide and broad gate that leads to destruction. And it's going to, and it's going to require some perspective looking at it at a different angle, but also some action. Uh, speaking of perspective and action, there's a story about an old man who liked to puff and smoke cigarettes. Now, through the reading of numerous articles, he became alarmed about the strong correlation between smoking and cancer. And he finally confided in a friend. He says, man, I've been reading so many articles about smoking and lung cancer that I've decided to quit reading. <laughs> now, perspective, wrong action. Well, if we look through our times that we're living in right now, and if we look through the passage in Matthew chapter 7, uh, it looks like, Things are getting from bad to worse. According to the religious study landscape, it says that nearly 23% of Americans now consider themselves uh, religious nun, meaning not N-U-N like a sister nun, but N-O-N-E uh, or N-O-N-E-S, meaning that they have no religious affiliation. 23%, that's as many as Catholics and Evangelicals, about 22-23% for each. And what's alarming about that, what may seem alarming, is that in 1971, only 5% of Americans claimed they don't have any religious affiliation. From 5 to 23%, that seems like pretty alarming. 23% of the population, that's over 56 million people in the United States today say, I don't believe in uh, Jesus, I have no religious affiliation. And what's more is that there's a decline in every age group of those who are attending church, whether boomers, okay boomer, right, or Gen X, or millennials, M-I-L-L-E-N-N-I-A-L-S, Millennials, gotta love millennials, that every age group and demographic has dipped and has dropped in church attendance and religious affiliation. And it holds true to what Jesus says that many enter this wide, broad gate and way, but it leads to destruction, but very few people enter the narrow gate and the narrow road which leads to eternal life. Even, you know, during the season of COVID, one out of every three, Barnard Group says, one out of every three, 33% of practicing Christians has stopped attending church. One out of three practicing Christian has stopped attending church during this pandemic. But we need to have the perspective of a group of um, 
in the Bible called the sons of Issachar in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32, who understood the times and they knew what to do. So they have the perspective. Jesus says, few will enter eternal life, but we need to have the right perspective, but also the right action towards that. And here's a perspective that I want us to walk away with and to be encouraged. I was listening to a podcast with uh, Pete Scazzaro, and he was talking to his longtime friend for over 40 years who happens to be a missiologist. He's the president of Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, Dr. Sunquist. Uh, last 40 years of his life, he has a PhD and he's been studying missiology, meaning the movements of God all throughout the world and all throughout history. And he asked him, hey, what's a comparable time in history where the church has been shut down like this and maybe God has done something despite the church being shut down? And immediately he says, Communist China, 1949, where prior to the communist victory in 1949, it was a huge mission field where what happened was when Mao Zedong took over, took over um, all missionaries were expelled from China. And the church went from 5 million believers, check this out, when the church was illegal and Christianity was illegal, it went from 5 million to 70 million people. I mean, to the 5% of the population is Christian. And they're saying now that there are more Christians in China today than there are Communist Party members. And I like, you know, what Mark Knoll and other church historians says that forcing the missionaries to leave was the birth of Christian China. Even though there were tremendous sufferings and momentous persecutions, what was left was a Chinese Christianity and Chinese Christians know how to do the gospel in China without the missionaries in a strange way. Losing China was the gospel taking root in China. And so it seems like all this to say is that it seems like church attendance is down. It seems like every age group, um, nuns, those who have no religious affiliation from 5% about 40 years ago, 50 years ago, now over 23%. But the good news is Jesus is coming back and the true church is rising up. It means that nominal Christians or Christians who are Christians by name. Oh yeah, I went to church one time. I went to a camp. I said some prayer. Oh, it, that they're like come to the point where because of persecution and because of their own life, they're like, yeah, I don't really believe in any of that stuff anymore. Where nominal Christians have increased, but uh, nominal Christians have declined, but convictional Christians, disciples of Jesus, have risen up and remain steadied. So here's my main point for us this morning. Would you write this down? Follow 
the long, difficult, and narrow life of being a disciple. What is a disciple? It is a convictional Christian of Jesus Christ. Follow the long and difficult, narrow life of being a convictional Christian. Let's read our text. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find eternal life or life are few. So what I love about Jesus here is that he presents two ways. He's very black and white. There's a narrow way, a difficult way, a long way, a hard way, a narrow life that leads to eternal life. But very few people walk in it. But you could choose this way. It is a broad, is it a wide gate? Many people enter it, but it leads to destruction. Ever since uh, Deuteronomy, where God presents Israel, hey, see, I have set before you today, Deuteronomy 30:15, life and death, blessings and curses, uh, death and evil. See, God presents, uh, you have two options. And in Jesus, as he concludes the Sermon of the Mounts here, he presents two things. Like today, he's going to talk about the narrow way or the wide way. Next week, we're going to go through the two prophets, false prophet and the true prophet. He's going to talk about two disciples, the real disciple of Gen and the fake disciple. And then he's going to talk and conclude with two foundations. Uh, everlasting foundation or a weak foundation. And so what Jesus does is that he presents this and he causes an impetus for us to take action, that a choice must be made. He presents a perspective of the few who will have eternal life and the many who won't have eternal life. He says, you guys make a choice. Are you with Jesus? Are you against him? There's no middle ground here. There's no other choice. A decision must be made, a decision with eternal consequences. And this narrow way is um, not something that's limited to the Gospel of Matthew. If we look at Luke chapter 13 in Luke's Gospel, we see here Jesus, he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? All right. And he said to them, strive to enter through the what? Narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able to. There's a narrow door that very few people will enter because it's difficult. It's hard. It's long. You'll come, you'll encounter obstacles and opposition and problems and difficulties. And so I want to present to you three difficulties. And they all start with B, Filipino, word of the day. I don't have a 
Filipino word of the day, but I have a Filipino story, a real one. My sister-in-law's mom was uh, at a restaurant and they're ordering food and she got her salad and she asked the, the waiter, uh, you know, I need the, do you have Caesar? Uh, Ma'am, what was that? Caesar, you have Caesar. And uh, she goes, oh, okay, Caesar, okay, we'll be right back. And the waiter came back with scissor, scissors, but she was asking for Caesar salad. But anyways, here are the three Ps of why it's difficult to enter the kingdom of God. And I'm going to take Matthew 13 on the parable of the sower. The first P is the difficulty of perception. Difficulty of perception. Do you guys remember that story where Jesus says there was a sower who sowed seeds? Some fell along the path, some fell along the thorns, some fell along the ground, and some fell on good fertile soil. So there's four types of soil. Three of them are not good. Only one, only 25%, if you want to think of those terms, have good fruitful soil that the word grew. All right, so the first one is the difficulty of perception. Matthew 13, this is the one that falls along the path. Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. So people who hear the word, they believe it, but they don't really understand it. And understanding here does not refer to like a mental capacity to understand the gospel. It is, has to do more of your heart. Earlier in, in verse 13, Jesus says, this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand, they don't perceive the heart issue. And he goes on to quote Isaiah, you will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. And the difficulty of the gospel is this, that you are not God that you are a sinner in desperate need of a savior. And the hardness of heart, you'd hear it and you're like, how dare you say I'm a sinner? I don't need a savior. I'm a good person. I pay my taxes on time. I've never killed anybody. I don't, I'm still married to my wife. I'm still married to my husband. I don't beat my kids. I raised educated children who are now responsible adults. I don't need a savior. Uh, my life is fine. I'm a self-made man. That there is a pride that prevents, there's this hardness of heart that fully um, prevents us from understanding, from the lights being on. You know, and it starts with God. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God. See, God is at the center of the universe, not you. 
because there's so many teaching and preaching out there that says, no, it begins with you, that God is here to love you and to bless you, and you're at the center of the universe, and God and everyone else around you is here to make you happy. But the gospel starts with God, that God is love, and he created us according to his image, but we fell, and because God is holy, he separated himself from us. And it is through his son, Jesus Christ, who paid our penalty that we deserved. He took it all on the cross. Something such as the anger of God or the wrath of God, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32, for the wrath of God has been revealed. I'm like, for some of us, we're, we, we have a difficult time understanding and comprehending and um, our palates cannot receive the fact that God is angry, but he is. But the good news is that he unleashed his anger and his wrath on sin. The sense of outrage that God has because of what sin does to us and what sin does to our relationship with him. You need to listen to me closely. You're going to encounter times where the Bible will challenge your worldview. And you have to decide if the Bible is the final authority of faith and practice. Where you let the Bible, the Word of God, determine something so simple, what is a man and what is a woman, where the Bible is a final authority on sexuality, where the Bible clearly states that no idolater, no fornicator will inherit the kingdom of God, where the Bible speaks on money, that you could only choose one, either God or mammon, on priority, on heaven and hell. Either you're going to receive and come under the word of God, come under the scripture and fall and align yourself and submit to the authority of scripture, or you're going to say, oh, it's just an ancient book with primitive practices, with all these ridiculous, ridiculous laws and ceremonies. But see, the problem of hearing the word is that we don't receive God for who he is. Uh, I read earlier this week that about 84% of Christians believe the Bible, but when they were probed further, less than half believed the God of the Bible. We have made God into our own image, which is idolatry. So when we hear the word, take God for who he is, that this is the inspired, the Theopneustos, the, the God-breathed self-revelation of how God reveals himself to us is through his word, and it's the final authority for faith and practice. Number two, the difficulty of not only perception or understanding, but the difficulty of pain. Look at Jesus says in verse 20, As for what was sown on rocky ground... This is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. 
yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or what? Persecution arises on the account of the word, immediately he falls away. The enemy has a pretty simple scheme. He's going to have you doubt the word of God. He's going to use pain and persecution, or he's going to use pleasure. 2 Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all, every single person who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. Matthew 16, 24, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If you want to be a convictional Christian, a disciple of Jesus Christ, you're going to have to deny yourself. You're going to have to take up the cross. You're going to have to persevere. You're going to have to endure persecution, tribulation, suffering, and pain. There's a biblical principle. If it happened to Christ, it's going to happen to those who are in Christ. And if Jesus Christ suffered in obedience to God's will, you and I will suffer. And when we identify ourselves in water baptism, when we're submerged, we, we identify in the death of Jesus Christ. We identify death to ourselves. When we come out of the water, we identify with a new life, a life of resurrection, a life of victory in Christ. You want to know how the disciples died? Peter and Paul, they were both martyred in Rome about AD 66 during the persecution under Emperor Nero. Paul was beheaded. Peter was crucified. And when they're about to crucify him, tradition says, he's like, you know what? I'm not worthy to be crucified like my master. So he was crucified upside down. Could you imagine the pain, uh, the blood rush going through your head as you're being crucified upside down? Andrew went to the land of man-eaters, which is basically now the Soviet Union. Christians there claim him as the first to bring the gospel to their land. He preached in Asia Minor, which is now modern-day Turkey, where he has said that he was crucified. Thomas was probably the most active in the east area of Syria. Tradition has him preaching as far as India, where the ancient Marthoma Christians reserve him as their founder. There they claimed he died when he was pierced through with spears by four soldiers. Philip had a powerful ministry in Carthage and North Africa, then in Asia Minor, where he converted the wife of a Roman proconsul. In retaliation, the proconsul had Philip arrested and cruelly be put to death. Matthew, the tax collector and writer of the gospel, ministered in Persia and Ethiopia. Some of the oldest reports says he was not only martyred, but he was stabbed to death in Ethiopia. Bartholomew, 
who went to Ethiopia, Armenia, and southern Arabia. There are various accounts how he met his death as a martyr for the gospel. James, the son of Alphaeus, Jewish historian Josephus reported that he was stoned and then he was clubbed to death. Simon the Zealot ministered in Persia and was killed after refusing to sacrifice to the sun god. Matthias, the apostle chosen to replace Judas, tradition sends him to Syria with Andrew and to death by burning, being burned alive. John, the beloved, who wrote Revelation in the Isle of Patmos, he escaped after being burned alive into uh, boiling oil at Rome. If anyone wants to follow me, this narrow, this difficult road of being not just a convert, but a disciple, a follower of Jesus, we must deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him. And the difficulty, not only is it receiving, welcoming, the word of God and welcoming the gospel, but also willing to endure, the few people are willing to endure through pain. Secondly, or thirdly rather, is the difficulty of pleasure. Matthew 13, verse 22, as for what was sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. If Satan can't entice you or he can't pressure you by pain, he's going to entice you with pleasure. He's going to entice you with the cares of this world, anxiety. That's why Jesus talked to his disciples. Don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear. Seek first the kingdom. Ask, seek, and knock, and it'll be given unto you. the deceitfulness of riches, the desire to be rich, the pleasures of this world will choke the word of God out and it will prove to be unfaithful. In the Bible, we have Judas Iscariot who traded the Lord of glory for 30 pieces of silver. But in Matthew, there's an interesting story there of the rich young ruler who had everything. He runs up to Jesus falls at his knees, he says, Master, good, good Master, like what can I do to in inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know the law. What does it say? It's like, well, obey your parents, and you know the commandments, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal. He goes, man, I've done that ever since a little kid. And Jesus, Mark, notes something where it says, Jesus looked at him and loved him. This is the only man in the whole of Mark's gospel whom we are explicitly told Jesus loved. Was this rich, young ruler who worked hard. He kept the rules. He tried his best. He did all this since he was a little boy. But Jesus loves this man too much to allow him to continue in self-deluded little world of sweat and hard work and determination. 
Jesus was not willing to stroke the man's ego and tell him how wonderful he was. Instead, Jesus issues a command, sell everything that you have. This is one thing that's preventing you from following me. It is this riches, the cares of the world. It's a long, difficult road. You know that ever since we've had online church, there have been 41 decisions for Christ. Can you imagine? 41 people in our small little church have said yes to Christ. But how many are actually following and being disciples and are being convictional Christians, not just nominal by name? Oh yeah, I said some little prayer, but really following him. And we'll, we'll go ahead and close with this. Not only do we follow but the narrow road, but we should avoid the shortcut of short, easy, and wide life of being just a convert or a, write this down, nominal Christian of Jesus. The Great Commission is not to make converts, is not to make decisions, but the Great Commission is to make disciples by teaching people to obey everything that Jesus says by baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, when we do that, when we make disciples, lo, I am with you till the end of the age. Matthew 13, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. I love how the message says, man, don't look for shortcuts to God. The market is flooded with surefire, easygoing formulas for a successful life that you'd be practicing your spare time. Don't fall for that stuff. Even though crowds of people do it, the way to life or to God is vigorous and requires total attention. Grace is freely given, but grace is not cheap. And one of the best quotes on discipleship and one of the best books on discipleship is by Dietrich Bonhoeffer who wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. And one of the quotes that I love, he says that when, when Christ calls a man or a woman, he bids him to come and die. And one of the things that he really unpacks is costly grace and cheap grace the costly grace of the narrow life, narrow road, difficult road versus the easy and wide grace and cheap grace. This is what he says. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is a treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. 
It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his net and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought at a price and what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. Many enter through this wide gate, this, oh yeah, yeah, I, I'll go to church. I'll go to church when it's convenient. There's air conditioning. They have up, you know, they have lively music. They have a good kids program. I'll go, you know, they have two services, 7.30 and 9.30, 7.30. So, and it's, and it's all good. We're here to serve, but not at the expense of following Jesus. This morning, I pray that the Holy Spirit would bring a conviction, not condemnation, a conviction. A conviction simply means that the Holy Spirit would persuade you that change your heart, change your mind to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus, that you're not going to allow your lack of understanding, your, how you perceive the gospel, that you're going to believe God at his word. God said it. I believe it. It's settled. That you're not going to allow problems, persecution, trial, suffering to prevent you from following Christ. And you're not going to allow pleasure, the anxiety, the care of this world, the allure and the deceitfulness of riches to distract you from following Jesus. Let's receive the full gospel of costly grace this morning and let's follow him and before we receive communion this morning this is your opportunity to deny yourself take up your cross and follow him no more messing around no more nominal Christianity where it's like I believe and that's it and you don't believe in Jesus so that you know you have a good moral foundation and uh, you don't go to church so that your kids would you know not vape or not do drugs or sleep around but you go to Jesus because he is a savior because he's healer and his kingdom has come he has paid my debt and your debt at the cross and I want to give this opportunity for you to welcome him and receive him into your life and follow him with everything that you have. So in your chat box right now, there's a, there's a tab that says, yes, 
I want to receive Christ. Or maybe in the chat box and Facebook, wherever, you could just put, yes, I want to, I believe in Jesus and I want to be a disciple. I'm willing to take up my cross. I'm willing to take on the narrow road that few people follow that leads to life. I want to believe and live out the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, we thank you, God, for this morning. Um, we thank you, Lord, that your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. Your word says in Isaiah, God, that your word goes out and it accomplishes its purpose. So right now I pray for a Holy Spirit conviction that we would turn to you, O Lord God. Father, I pray, God, for um, those, Lord, who say yes to you. I pray right now, Lord, that it would be from the heart that it would be from a Holy Spirit conviction, O oh Lord God, to love you, to follow you, to serve you, Lord, and to obey you. Lord, we thank you, God, for the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And Lord, I pray right now, God, that you would uh, seal us with your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's go ahead and receive our communion. The Bible says, for I receive from the Lord which I now deliver unto you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took the bread, broke it, he gave thanks and said, this is my body broken for you. Eat of this in remembrance of me. So let's go ahead and take the bread and let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We thank you, Lord, for taking our place at the cross, that you were our substitute, that your body was broken so that we can live in wholeness, that our lives don't have to be fractured and broken by sin, but Lord, that we can live in victory and freedom in you, Jesus. So as we eat this bread, I pray that you would strengthen us. Lord, your word says, man shall not live by bread alone. And so, Lord, bread has a sustaining power. So would you give us grace? Would you give us strength? Would you sustain us as we eat of this bread so that we could love you, we could serve you, we could follow you? In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go ahead and eat of the bread. In the same manner, after his supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Drink of this as often as you eat. For as often as you eat of the bread and drink of the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's proclaim the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. And let's drink the cup. Amen. Amen.